Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are actually not going to talk about whether robots are people too, because they're not. And I hope you already know that. Though you've probably more than once been fooled into having a conversation, say in chat on a website when with what you thought was a human being, but was actually a bot. But we are not going to be talking about that because robots and bots are not people. We are actually going to be talking about whether or not people are still people in the light of all the (laughs) technological advances, so-called, of the past 30 years or so. And let's just say right up the um, apparent hypocrisy of criticizing these things when we are using the fabulous advances of the internet and recording technology and podcast distributions and and um, online video chat and so forth in order to bring this to you. But yes, it's messy, and we will be disentangling all of that. So, Dad, you spent a good portion of your life without the internet. Tell us what that was like. Oh, it was so calm and peaceful, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> no wars, and no rage. No, I just lived through Vietnam and the civil rights movement and the Nixon presidency, and shall I continue? You get the point. Um, I think that my attitude towards this basically has been uh, the statement of Jesus, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And I think when you theologize about that, you realize the Sabbath is instituted um, as a relief from uh, the hard labor uh, uh, for survival, uh, and a, a, at the same time, uh, a time to use that leisure for meditation, study, prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. Um, that was the theology of the Sabbath. And so to make the Sabbath uh, into um, uh, an end in itself, rather than a divinely given a blessing uh, uh, in relief of human struggle uh, is uh, kind of fundamental to Christian theology. And I, I think the same way about technology. Man was not made for technology, but technology was made for man. Uh, and when technology becomes a technocracy, when which we'll have to unpack, when when technology takes on a life of its own and has a mandate or imperative. Because we can do it, therefore we must do it. Uh, We simply must continually enhance human power through technology up to and including now the digital revolution. We quickly find ourselves becoming enslaved Uh, to the saviors uh, that have been offered to us. And I think that's what we'll be talking about today. Yeah. I suppose my only difference there was that you seem to be optimistic that people actually could release themselves from slavery to their tech. And though I'm not widely read in the philosophy of technology, uh, it seems to me that there's a pretty strong strand that say, yeah, (laughs) and yet um, people are continually rewired and altered by their technology, and there is a lot less freedom to change or opt out than we'd like to think. But maybe that's a difference that I... I, I, like you, went through a childhood without digital technology, but my adulthood coincided with its arrival I, in uh, 
the year I turned 18 was the year I discovered both email and the internet. So my whole adult life, though not my childhood, has been marked by it. Yeah, I think we've talked about this too, about, uh, for example, Facebook. And if you don't mind my saying the reasons why you're skeptical of Facebook, uh, but I continue to enjoy it, uh, using it. And I think the difference here really is generational. Uh, for people my age, we've already lived our lives. We know who we are. We're not trying to establish our identity online, you know, and it's not a popularity contrast about getting a lot of likes in order to feel good about ourselves or, or any of this stuff, which actually, actually has come to dominate uh, in very destructive ways the lives of many young people. Um, so um, I, I do think that there's, I have a different relationship to the digital revolution that you are, but I'm fully aware of the issues that you're raising here. I'll just say, and I really began to notice this in the Great Recession of 2008-2009. Uh, up until that time, uh, I loved being a professor in a liberal arts college. I had droves of interesting and brave students who wanted to explore the great questions. And it was just a, a really fun and happy time uh, to be a teacher of religion and philosophy uh, as I was at Roanoke College. But I began to notice after 2008-2009 that the mandate came down from highly stressed, financially stressed parents you better get out of there in four years or less with a marketable degree, which really dried up students interested in exploring the great questions of the humanities and the liberal arts. And that, of course, stressed our department quite a bit in a lot of ways. But what I noticed in the ensuing years is the extraordinary rise of isolation among students' mental health problems, uh, I had several students die of suicide uh, or drug uh, overdoses. Uh, I saw endemic loneliness. I used to wait until halfway through a semester, Sarah, when I had gained the trust of students. Um, and I asked them if they thought the, the progress of culture was all so great. I would say, then why are you all so depressed? And, you know, almost to a person, when I posed that question, the students would just look at their feet, hang their heads in shame at the misery in which they were living. Um, now, I know there were other students who were vic victorious and triumphant through these kinds of ordeals, but I think uh, it's unquestionable that this younger generation the first generation, Sarah, to be raised on easy access to any kind of pornography you want, <laughs> you know, thanks to the internet, right? And uh, who's trying to establish their personal selves, their sexual selves uh, uh, at this age, stage of life uh, through the internet. And it just compounds uh, those challenges, which are immense uh, in any circumstance.
Well, again, I mean, that's really the difference is having a childhood marked by digital tech. And that is the watershed between my generation and the one that came after me. And, um, you know, just back to your comment about Facebook and about and which relates to these students is that the I think finally the world is beginning to recognize the enormous mental health toll and especially on young people of things like social media and other aspects of digital tech. But as we'll just begin to hint at here, but probably can't cover too exhaustively, there is more at stake than, no, more at stake. It's pretty significant at stake, mental health and and risk of suicide. Uh, The reason why um, I'm more withdrawn from these things than you are is because of not wanting to feed the beast. And even if you know who you are, your data on Facebook is being harvested in order to undergo this vast experiment of analyzing, predicting, and ultimately manipulating and controlling people. And for those of you who are new to this topic, this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory. And I hate to tell you it's not because conspiracy theories are so wonderful because there is a secret cabal. And if you could just like assassinate the bad guys at the center, everything would be fine. This is fundamentally why I don't believe in conspiracy theories, though, you know, occasionally there are real conspiracies. But because of the psychological comfort they give to the believer in the conspiracy theory, the problem which we're going to start unraveling here is how we have all opted in in various ways. We are so entangled. Um, A lot of times we did not know what we were opting into, but unfortunately there's no smoking gun. There's no secret bad guy or villain in his underground lair like in a James Bond movie. This is truly like the web. It goes in every different direction. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And you and I have read some important books by uh, influential uh, scholars of this whole problem. I, we're going to talk a lot today about Jaron Lanier, um, who wrote a book with the title, You Are Not a Gadget. Uh, and he has pretty good creds, uh, credentials, uh, to write a book like this because he was in on uh, the digital revolution. He was one of the pioneers of, of creating virtual reality technologies and things like that. He's a Silicon Valley insider. Uh, And in fact, in his books, he says, all these people are my friends, and I hope they don't get too mad at me, but I just have to (laughs) blow the whistle on what I see here, right? And uh, this Sunday, past Sunday in church, our pastor had a really powerful sermon in which he talked about um, how people profiteer on creating your outrage. And, you know, you ask, Sarah, how the world has gotten so nutty, how it's gotten so crazy, right? How this polarization has been accentuated in the United States to a level I don't remember since the war in Vietnam. And I think a lot of it has to do with the 24-hour news news cycle, the endless news cycling and the need uh, to gin up ratings uh, on television, radio, and through the internet uh, by pushing people's buttons and getting them angry at other people. And that feeds into an enormous uh, uh, loop. Uh, Right now, it's this release of the draft opinion uh, uh, Supreme Court opinion overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. 
and which is just being on the television news I pay attention to, it's just being hyped and hyped and hyped one way and the other. Uh, so, you know, no wonder we're all so angry at each other. You, most people in the United States have never read Roe versus Wade. They don't know what it says. They have no understanding of, of what kind of, of ruling it is and, uh, it's, uh, and the constitutional role of the court and so forth and so on. And you, you would be lost to find a serious discussion of these kinds of questions, the pros and the cons of overturning what Roe v. Wade actually is. And instead, all you get is this hyperbolic, if you cancel Roe v. Wade, you outlaw abortion all across the country. If you don't uh, cancel Roe v. Wade, you permit the baby killers to continue unabated. You know, I, I, sometimes I just despair at the level of discourse that's been created by the, this uh, kind of technology. Well, your your observation is right in that um, the market share of television news has absolutely plummeted. And one of the reasons they are so extreme and desperate in their coverage is trying to get it back. Um, the problem is that the Internet is a way faster hit of outrage than network news or cable news. <laughs> so right. they're not going to win at that game. Um, but it means the Internet is going to go on winning at the outrage game. I, I guess what I what I really want to follow up here and stress is that it's very easy, and this is how I came into it, is to see all this outrage and craziness and take it, first of all, as a moral failing of people. And, you know, clearly in some root sense it is because people are eminently capable of doing this. But something changed. And that just is not an adequately satisfying answer that suddenly people got a whole lot worse. You know, something happened socially, culturally, technologically that has made the outrage comes so much more to expression and has caused, you know, the formation of these polls and then the, you know, um, cowing and maybe cowardice of the exhausted middle, as it's coming to be ca called, um, who are the overwhelming majority and don't know how to handle this. And so one of the things I'd like to do is just by following Lanier a bit is, is see the, the actual technological mechanisms by which our already human, uh, um, unattractive moral tendencies can be so amplified because I think the solution is, first of all, not a moral one in the sense of be nicer, stop getting outraged because that's just not working <laughs> to um, actually um, uh, structural solutions um, in the sense of starting in your own life of putting up barriers and boundaries and making decisions not to expose yourself to things that are poisonous, just like one might decide not to smoke cigarettes or use other drugs because they are bad for you, not even primarily because there's something morally wrong with cigarettes or drugs. And I, I think what, you know, in a way, <laughs> our era is the era of addiction because of where tech has advanced. There are so many ways now to understand and hack the brain and the body. You know, like we talked last year in our episode on on hacking the law. The more you know about how humans work, the more you can hack and manipulate their systems. And what the Internet is, is a just 
unbelievably massive increase in the rate and scale at which human behavior can be manipulated. And at that level, you cannot make just a a moral decision to be a good person when you are following the trails of of content on social media that's designed to, uh, not by a person, but by an algorithm to lead you in extremist directions. You simply have to say, I'm not going to be a part of this. Well, yeah, I think that's right. I I think it's I, I quite agree with you. There's not a conspiracy here which would allow us to identify some evildoers. And if we could just decapitate the conspiracy, the problem would go away. Uh, it is a structural problem of the uncontrolled growth of technology uh, sliding into the rule of technology, which overrules uh, all possible human, moral, political, legal objections. Uh, it's kind of like, if we don't do it, the Chinese will do it. If we don't do it, the Iranians will do it. If we don't do it, the Japanese will do it. You know, and on probably all not, these but... different, probably, well, on some of the biotech stuff, though. Anyway, I, I'm just, <laughs> just saying here that, that, uh, there's only, because we're living in a contested world uh, in which fear uh, of others uh, 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 is a major player, you know, you can't easily say no to developing hypersonic missiles because the Russians developed them and doggone it, we better have hypersonic missiles too. And you can't just moralistically say no to that without, uh, you know, bowing down to the domination of, of an enemy. Uh, and so it's not, it's a, tr- it's a difficult trap and how to get out of it. But I think part of the contribution theologians can make is to understand the deeper dynamics of this addiction, uh, these cycles uh, that, that we fall into this way. Right. Right. And then, you know, look for partners and people who understand substantially how these systems work, because to every um, toxic and addictive system, alternatives do exist. And so there is some, you know, practical vote with your feet kind of work to be done to put there. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time going into those right now. But I think what we should do now is spend some time with Lanier. So his book that you mentioned, Dad, You Are Not a Gadget, and he's written others since then, which I will put in the show notes. I've read them all and they're fantastic and illuminating. Um, so this book is, is more than 10 years old by now. And what it is, is it's it's kind of a free-flowing reflection on um, personhood versus tech um, through the eyes of someone who was there and helped develop a lot of these early systems in Silicon Valley. And um, and. I would say loves them in a lot of ways and the the possibilities they represented. Um, I, I'm a bit too young to quite remember it, but you know, early adopters of the internet were thrilled by its freedom and how it allowed um, human weirdness, um, not toxicity, <laughs> to proliferate. And it was not 
commercial at first. And there was this um, genuine belief that this was a way of people really finding each other, sharing common interests, expressing themselves without, um, you know, elitist gatekeepers. Like you could you could publish your story online and you didn't have to get some futzy New York agent to approve it and then take multiple years <laughs> and most of your profits to see it in print. And uh, just the you hear credibly the possibility that all of this represented. You also hear the utopianism as if the money and control weren't going to follow really fast. But that's where it started. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was, uh, you know, you remember Michael Jackson singing, We Are the World, <laughs> We Are the People. You know, that was exactly the dream. The dream was that the internet was going to level the playing field and allow the people to rise up uh, and their uh, inner goodness would finally uh, break through all the inhibitions created by corrupt institutions and it would be the redemption of the noble, noble savage within all of us. <laughs> and we would... We would be, be in a big circle holding hands singing we are the world we are the people and that's what the internet would do you know and i think i don't doubt the the goodwill and intention of, of these original dreamers but as lanier points out very quickly the commercial interests realized wow what a way to target advertising through the internet and that's how the internet got monetized, right? Right. But I think even before that, and now this this is a, a little more um, cognitively demanding, but I think it's a really helpful insight into why things turn out the way they do with computing. So you can go back really far in human civilization, basically once we're beyond the tribe where you know everybody and have a direct personal relationship. Once you get beyond that scale in human civilization, it becomes necessary to have impersonal relationships between persons sheerly mathematically, because you cannot have a direct relationship to everyone. And, you know, this is where, you know, states arise, governments arise of various kinds. And this is where things like... um um, articulated law rather than the ongoing custom of the, the tiny tribal community have to be articulated. And as we, again, said in our episode on the law, there's always a gap between the articulated law and some real human situation that comes up. And over time, you know, over a grand scale of time, this is where things like bureaucracy come into existence because you have to find some way to navigate between these different scales of personal and impersonal. You have to manage these articulated laws and then what actually really happens. Um, but the, the very deep pattern that starts to emerge is that um, states or governors um, or whoever is in charge of anything that they don't have a direct personal relationship to have to start charting out ways to relate to them and come up with systems. And, you know, taxation systems are the oldest ones there of trying to survey what people have and then therefore what they can take. Thinking back to our, our Saul saga and Samuel's warning, you know what a king does? He takes and takes and takes and takes and takes. Um, <laughs> but they're also what, what's implied in this. Um, and, and this is um, there's there's a, 
a historian named James Scott who wrote a book, Seeing Like a State, which is very helpful on this point, is that there is a distinct kind of vision that comes with that level of, of power and control. So you so the state, and, and again, this is any control system, this is going to apply to computer systems too, only sees what it sees and only knows that it sees what it sees. And although this is true of everybody, um, the more you scale it up and the more power is involved in it, the more problematic it becomes. So this is this is government's time out of mind. What happens when computing starts is that every single thing has to be decided. There's no like natural animal cognition, embodied cognition to take it along, but that computer developers and coders and designers have to start figuring out bit by bit, literally, because that's what it's made of through bits and coding, how to map out the program they want to do, the world they want to represent. So, for instance, Jaron Lanier gives this amazing example of the um, horrible tinny uh, representation of music that uh, comes with computers. It's called MIDI and um, how it was just thrown together as a stopgap solution and its musical range is extremely narrow. It basically takes the infinity of notes possible from a large number of uh, musical instruments as well as human voices and just basically uses the scales to say this is this note and this is this note and this is this note. Um, if you've listened to jazz, you know that there is an infinite number of notes available, but the program can only render what the programmers have made it capable of. And so Lanier talks about how suddenly this stopgap solution musical programming became absolutely everywhere and suddenly music was vastly dumbed down in order to be programmable. And he uses that as a symbol and an example of how this happens over and over and over again in the same pattern of you only see what you see and the computer can only render what it renders and all that's left out is as if it never existed at all. Yeah, and he points out how quickly then, again, because of the monetization of MIDI, uh, that system got locked in and it was irreformable. Uh, it, it became so vastly uh, standardized that no one could afford uh, to, to uh, uh, come up with an alternative to it. And, see, you know, he's a musician himself, Lanier is, and so he's quite unhappy about this state of affairs. I suppose we might ask him, why don't you create an alternative? But I think what he would say is, it's, it, it, you can't break in, it's locked in. Yeah, so that's a really interesting concept of lock-in, which is that once things get set in place, it's really hard to undo them. So why do so many people have Windows operating systems? <laughs> Apparently, it's quite a mess down below. Who would ever know? But one of the reasons is because of the network effect. And you can say, like, why don't you you leave Facebook and use a different system? Well, first of all, because of the network effect of Facebook, but also because there is a sense in which social media is already locked in, people expect a share button and a like button. And all alternatives that have come up are still all using them. They're all still f basically functioning the same way. And this is the part where people stop affecting tech and tech starts affecting people because, uh, again, what Lanier points out is how people have a weird 
but very deep tendency to alter themselves in order not only to suit the technology, but to make the technology look better. And I have to say, this was one of the most unnerving things he wrote that really struck home with me, though, how very, very true that is, that we are always trying to... um, I mean, Dad, how many times have you felt frustrated with um, your computer or with your software, but assumed that the problem was because you're, you know, you came later to the game than others and you just don't have it, right? You probably blamed yourself. Well, no, I'm, my personality is such as that I blame the damn computer, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I think a lot of people feel like they are inadequate in the face of technology and are not up to it. And I I was surprised to hear as a talented technologist, as Lanier say, it's not your fault. Somebody designed everything. Everything represents a decision made and a decision made about how people work. So if something is not working for you, it's badly designed or it's suffering the effects of of lock-in or network effects that are too costly to break out of. Exactly. Yeah. One of the most um, uh, interesting parts for me, uh, this is, um, um, people probably have heard of this. It's called the Turing test named for Alan Turing, who's sort of the considered the, the father of modern computer. Uh, you know, computers. I mean, he event- he basically invented the first computer during um, World War II to um, break Nazi code. Um, but he came up with this notion that um, we would know that tech had achieved consciousness of its own when a human being could carry on a conversation, uh, presumably like a, a chat conversation by a written word. And if the human could not tell that the um, computer on the other side was a computer and not a person, then that would mean that the computer had achieved consciousness. Now, this is an extremely bizarre test because it's it's kind of a personhood is imputed rather than inherent, uh, which has all sorts of alarming consequences. Um, so, but the the root of it is the human ability to be fooled, or perhaps the human willingness to be fooled by the tech, not anything actually within the tech's own uh, perception of reality, if there could be such a thing. And I started thinking about how absolutely true that is that that fundamental need to believe and the human tendency to impute personhood and impute meaning and between persons that's a really good idea but when that starts being granted to things that are really not persons it becomes um toxic and starts to rewire our brain in extremely dangerous ways i've heard studies of or reports about people who design very advanced um robots like with you know like with bodies uh, extended bodies not just chat bots and um having children interact with them and the children don't know that they're not people on some level or they start relating to them so strongly that there was a feeling that it was probably unethical to expose children to these robots because they formed bonds that were not being reciprocated um, I even found an early Isaac a- um, Asimov story. You know, he's the the um, famous um, sci-fi writer called Robbie, and it's exactly about this: about parents who are concerned that their little girl loves the robot Robbie more than anything else, and is just uninterested in relating to other children or other people. Period. And I was just like, this is exactly the relationship that we've all formed with our smartphones. You know, it's not a tall, huggy robot, <laughs> yeah. but it is fundamentally the same thing because of our tendency to impute 
personhood. The problem is that we are basically turning our tech into gods. I was so reminded, Dad, of of that um, wonderful verse or that section from the Psalms, um, Psalm 135, criticizing the idols of the nation, silver and gold. You made them. You know you made them. You gave them a mouth, but they can't speak. And you gave them ears, but they can't hear. And the conclusion is those who make them become like them. That's where we're at. So do all those who trust in them. Yes, Psalm 135. Yep, very good. Well, that one of the most fascinating things about Lanier's book to me, and I think we should talk about this now because it's a good segue to this, is all the comments he makes about religion. But before we do that, I just want to make a few more comments about um, the monetization of the internet and why this juggernaut is being driven uh, uh, in part uh, uh, by the follow the money, I guess, is always a good, good advice. Uh, why is this drive from simply uh, selling to advertisers, hey, with our metadata, we can target your advertising nice and precisely so people who have expressed an interest in X, Y, or Z we can correlate that with your advertising and there it pops up on your screen. And everybody who's listening to this has had this experience on the internet that you do a search for something and the next day or the next hour, suddenly you're getting advertisements for what you were looking for. And so advertisers, there's big money in this. I mean, instead of shooting a, 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 a broadside and hoping that you hit this is precision-guided missiles for advertisers. They can go right to the potential target. Well, then, of course, there's competition between um, uh, web, web programs and web designs and, and advertisers trying to say, you know, we can guarantee, we can do better, we can do better, we can be more precise, we can be so highly probable. And there's a slippery slope there. Uh uh, to going from predicting behavior to creating behavior. And that's, I think, the very dangerous thing that's happening right now, is that uh, people can now, because we are so wired in, because all this, as you were saying earlier, all this data about us is being fed uh, into these enormous computers that with their algorithms can sort huge amounts of data, unbelievable amounts of data. I want to tell a story about Alexander Novalny about this to illustrate this. Uh, 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 that uh, you can now go from, uh, you really can go from predicting behavior with this data to creatively shaping behavior. And that's the stepping stone to North Korea. I, I mean, in a way, philosophically, if you ask if this kind of radical behaviorism is possible, can you really do it? Can you really, uh, uh, through the Internet of Things, can you really shape and create human behavior itself? Well, I think we already see the evidence for that in, in a society like North Korea, in, in which, of course, you can't. With enough rewards and punishments, 
uh, and enough uh, mechanisms of social control, yeah, you can create human uniformity. Uh, is that desirable? Yeah, though I, I I would dare to say that there are probably a lot of North Koreans who find themselves thinking thoughts that they know they're not supposed to have, and they are you know, far too terrorized to express them, um, probably to themselves, much less to one another. But the, the underlying stubborn human substrate remains. And I think it's really important to say that because all all utopianisms, um, whether they're good or evil, basically want human beings to be manageable all the way down. And I think that's the deep connection between the way digital systems work and this marketing drive. It's not just one or the other, but it's the fact that computing works by breaking things down into tiny bits and stacking them up. But in the end, everything has to be decided upon and controlled and inputted and organized. And Lanier has this phrase, which is is really um, powerful to me. He says, what makes something real is that it is impossible to represent it to completion. And as, (laughs) as our tech scales, I think there is this genuine belief that we can represent everything to completion, every, you know, even though weather prediction has gotten better, we still can't predict the weather to completion, right? But how much more with our personal selves when we are actively donating data and, you know, agreeing to the, you know, the fill in the blanks on, again, your, your, Facebook profile or your Tinder profile, if you're trying to date or whatever it is, um, or, you know, with taxes, you're used to it. You don't want the government, the IRS to know you personally. That's fine. But there are so many ways in which personal matters are being turned into these little bits. Everything is a bit. You can fill it in, represent it to completion. And that's who I am. I think this is what is destroying the souls of your students that you've seen because they are, they are, don't see any alternative, but to being complicit into rendering themselves objects. And if they're objects, then they can be bought and sold. And that's where the material part kicks in. I mean, the the, uh, the monetization kicks in. Yeah, of course, all adolescents go through that. They're trying to figure out who they are. And uh, with, or, with or without digital technology, adolescence has always been that stage in life and you're trying to find out who you are. And if the only mirror you can look in is your self-representation on the internet, God have mercy. No wonder you'll never find yourself, I would say. Here's, but you were talking about the human inner human core that cannot ultimately be controlled. This is what Lanier says about this. I think this is very interesting. The mere possibility of there being something ineffable about personhood is what drives many technologists to reject the notion of quality. They want to live in an airtight reality that resembles an idealized computer program in which everything is understood and there are no fundamental mysteries. They recoil from even the hint of a potential zone of mystery or unresolved uh, 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 aspects uh, in one's uh, worldview. The desire for absolute order usually leads to tears in human affairs, so there is historical reason to distrust it. So, I mean, I think it's really important for people to know that this is the philosophy that underlies computing. And I I don't mean that to say that, therefore, you have to reject 
everything about computers, but it helps to know <laughs> what's what's underlying all these systems that you use and realize, you know, at, at minimum, you need to make some deliberate choices about how you're going to use it, lest its philosophy begin to rewire your brain. And actually, Lanier says that too. We don't argue our philosophy with you. We just directly alter your cognitive experience of reality to force you to believe the way that we do. Right. Let me tell my little anecdote about um, Alexander Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who's now languishing in the gulag. Um, but when he uh, was poisoned uh, at the uh, direction of Vladimir Putin uh, three years ago, uh, and fortunately he got airlifted uh, to Germany where he recovered, and they discovered that he'd been poisoned with this Soviet uh, agent, uh, chemical agent called uh, Novichuk. Uh, but, uh, of course, the Kremlin immediately denied that it had anything to do with his poisoning. And so uh, a computer geek investigative reporter uh, decided uh, to take up uh, Navalny's cause. And through the internet on the black market, he started buying all sorts of data from telephone records and uh, various other air flight manifests and things like this. And so he was able by a process of elimination to identify the three agents who flew from Moscow to this city in Siberia where Navalny was. And, uh, and they were the ones who did the hit. But of course, now, how do you, how do you prove that to the public? And what's fascinating, Sarah, is that through the internet, this investigative reporter got their telephone numbers, figured out their relationships to the state secret security service, and Navalny himself uh, called them on the phone. It was all recorded. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> and speaking in Russian, of course, he impersonated the superior officer of these uh, uh, lower uh, agents who actually did the hit job. And he said, I I'm writing a report uh, for what went wrong in this operation. And I got to take a statement from you. And so tell me this and tell me that, and tell me this. And the guy coughed up. It was basically a confession saying that they hid the Novichuk in his laundry, which he had sent down to have laundered and then they put this agent in his underpants and sent it back and that's how they got him and the whole story was recorded that way so just i'm telling that anecdote to make people realize the power of metadata analysis how they were and you know we use this to to fight terrorists you know uh, and so forth that's you know big controversy about privacy and so forth but that's how powerful a, an investigative reporter was able to reveal a putin's assassin assassins uh, and get them uh, stupidly to confess to the crime <laughs> 
Yeah, and if you want to say, well, they should have known it wasn't the right voice, deep fake audio and video is so advanced now that the reporter probably could have just typed in what he wanted to say and processed it through a deep fake of the voice because you don't need very much voice to do a deep fake. So, yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm often now with this privacy stuff, I think I think it's in the Gospel of John. Doesn't Jesus say something like everything said in secret will be shouted from the rooftops and everything done in the dark <laughs> will come under the light? Like that is literally the world we live in now. Folks, if you're doing anything you shouldn't be doing, you should assume someone can find out at any time. There's zero privacy anymore. Um, and only your temporary insignificance is any protection. Um, and, and even the people who are insignificant, their metadata is being collected and extracted and analyzed for larger scale operations of monetization and control. But let's get over to the religion thing now, because we're already uh, plowing along through our time here, Dad. Why don't you take it away here? Well, I think that um, what's fascinating here is uh, Lanier, um, in his description of his comrade technologists, the ones I just described, who are looking uh, to impose uh, a world of perfect order in which there are no surprises because everything is known and no secrets uh, exist any longer, no mysteries and of course, Lanier, as a, uh, a humanist of the Jewish tra tradition, uh, uh, is opposed to this, and he wants to preserve uh, humanness or humanity, uh, what he calls quality, as opposed to the quantitative reductionism of reducing everything to information bits and, and uh, algorithms that control, manipulate, and predict this data. Uh, and so as he's thinking about his comrade technologists and their utopian faith in uh, the uh, Internet of Things, that's the idea here is that every, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a, a marketing scheme to get people to wear eyeglasses, sunglasses that would have little cameras in them that would be constantly signaling to the Internet. And that's what's go, going on. Everything is being, data of everything is being uh, collected, collated, analyzed, so that uh, more and more powerful mechanisms of control can be created. And uh, this is what Lanier says about that. A self-proclaimed materialist movement that attempts to base itself on science starts to look like a religion rather quickly. It soon presents its own eschatology and its own revelations about what is really going on, portentous events that no one but the initiated can appreciate. The singularity and the noosphere, the idea that a collective consciousness emerges from all the users on the web, echo Marxist social determinism and Freud's calculus of perversions. How's that for a broadside? <laughs> well, you know, what makes Lanier so credible is he says he grew up in a part of New Mexico where the rapture was a really obsessive theme of local religion. You know, this, you know, 
before the end comes with the tribulation, you know, all the good people will be raptured right out of there and then everyone else will suffer for like a thousand years or how, you know, whatever particular version you buy into. So he knows how these things work and he makes the amazing comparison and says the singularity is fundamentally the same thing just deployed among, you know, secular atheist technologists who um, look forward to a time when all the good people's consciousness will be uploaded to the, you know, great network in the sky and they will leave their bodies and their suffering behind and enjoy this blissful harmony of interpenetration with each other's consciousnesses. Um, which, I mean, for me, probably, I mean, I suppose it's because I'm a Christian, but that sounds so horrifying as well as preposterous um, because I... Uh, believe, and I think there's good reason to believe, that cognition is essentially related to bodiliness. You do not get the one without the other. But obviously, a scientific or religious intervention like that is meaningless in the face of the dogmatism of the singularity faith. Well, I think the, the some of the plausibility of this, and this should simply be granted, uh, you're quite right that, that cognition is bodily because cognition uh, includes uh, all five senses, and it involves uh, a holistic response to an infinity of data inputs that are bombarding us all the time, uh, and it's cultivated by language and societies facilitating our being able to turn attention and att to attend to things that are relevant to us and so forth. So absolutely right on the embodiment of cognition. But part of cognition is also computational. You know, that's why we learn to count. <laughs> that's why we, <laughs> right. we mathematize things. Computation is ex extremely important to cognition. It's just not the whole of it, like uh, uh, these utopians want to believe. This is, and this is the danger, Sarah, that you mentioned. This is Lanier again. Um, if you believe the rapture is imminent... Fixing the problems of this life might not be your greatest priority. You might even be eager to embrace wars and tolerate poverty and disease in order to bring about the conditions that could prod the rapture into being. In the same way, if you believe the singularity, the Internet of Things, is coming soon, you might cease to design technology to serve humans and prepare instead for the grand events it will bring. The rapture and the singularity share one thing in common. They can never be verified by the living. <laughs> Oof, that gives me that's chills. A, that's so friggin' ominous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think the extent to which we have already seen that happening is really terrifying. Everything from, you know, our life, uh, too many people's lives is controlled by the threat of um, weapons of mass destruction to the ways that we have altered what the notion of friendship is in order to maximize friends on Facebook, even to the extent of, um, a, again, we, we have not said a whole lot about COVID here, and I don't want to go into it very deeply, but um, I remember that the first response was, oh, thank goodness we had the internet. It's what made our um, 
lockdowns uh, for during COVID endurable? And my thought was always, no, it's what made them possible. There is no way any of this lockdown of all the various levels and scales would have happened unless there had been an internet and unless there had been an elite who could by and large stay safely at home with their interconnectedness while others went out and put themselves at risk. Yeah, as the as the good old Marxist would say, let's do a class analysis and see who benefited <laughs> from the lockdowns. Mm, mm. Yeah, be- before we move on, though, from Re- Lanier's discussion of religion, here's one more quotation that I think is really cool. Those who enter into the theater of computationalism are given all the mental solace that is usually associated with traditional religions. These include consolations for metaphysical yearnings in the form of the race to climb to ever more meta or higher level states of digital representation, and even a colorful eschatology in the form of the singularity, and indeed through the singularity, a hope of an afterlife is available to the most fervent believers. Is it conceivable that A new digital humanism could offer romantic visions that are able to compete with this extraordinary spectacle. I have found that humanism provides an even more colorful, heroic, and seductive approach to technology. So there, Lanier at the end segues to his alternative to bowing down uh, to the idols of technocracy. And it's what he calls humanism. Well, why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> well, actually, I, I, to follow up, I think this is exactly where the, the rubber hits the road for us as theologians. Um, in, in an afterword to this book that he added later after the first edition, he kind of builds on this point. He says, while there is a lot of talk in the air about whether to believe in God or not, I suspect that religious arguments are gradually incorporating coded debates about whether to even believe in people anymore. Are people just one form of information system, one form of gadget? The old debates about God are now also about us. And so I don't know what Lanier's explicit religious commitments are, but I think he is right to um, both want to counterpose humanism in the sense that, you know, humans are the real thing, not the tech that they create. You know, do not become like them who worship the idols of their own hands. That's correct. But there's also a sense in which humanism has never been an adequate argument because of the all-too-human tendency to worship the products of our own hands, not to mention to destroy other humans who do not fit our expectations. And I think his later intuition that there is something here connected to whether or not we believe in God is deeply right, because I don't think the humanist car- uh, the humanist arguments can be ultimately successfully argued without God. Now, again, in a civic sense, I would love it if you could argue humanism without God because of um, my commitment to religious freedom means that I would like all hands on deck in creating a good polis, regardless of whether or not people believe in God. Whether that's actually possible, I think, is kind of where our whole civilization 
is at right now. And I, my deep um, suspicion and fear in a way is that you just cannot make the humanist argument without making the theistic argument. And I think Lanier on some level realizes that they somehow end up being the same argument, not ontologically, but in the way we actually experience life together. Yeah, really good, Sarah. And I think you're correct about both aspects of what you're saying there. Uh, humanism uh, in Western civilization is a product of the Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, from the first page of the Bible, in his own image he created them, in his own likeness, male and female, uh, um, and he blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. The whole human vocation, uh, uh, which is what humanism is about, is belief in the human vocation, uh, is derivative of the uh, theological uh, vision uh, of the city of God, as Augustine called it, uh, stemming from the first pages of the Bible. The difficulty, of course, is that it's in life and death struggle with what Augustine also called the earthly city, Civitas Terrena, the city of man in which uh, 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 as Jesus, as Jesus said among the Gentiles, they lorded over one another, right? And so humanism then uh, always is um, in a fraught and contested world, tempted uh, to strategies of domination in order to protect uh, it, what's precious. Uh, but of course, that creates a, a, a cycle of violence and dehumanization uh, that that undercuts or uh, 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 sabotages the very affirmations of what's humanly precious that we're trying to defend. That's one of the reasons why war is ultimately uh, a, a disaster, as we're seeing in Ukraine right now. I guess for me, the the thing that humanism can't answer well <laughs> is why do we desire our own subjugation? And Dad, you and I have come back to this point a lot of times in, in regard as we've been exploring this tech stuff, you know, in conversation before this podcast over some some months now, but also in just other domains of life. You know, the, the humanist project wants to vaunt and exalt the human desire for freedom. And, you know, still in American popular culture, it's just assumed that what everyone wants is freedom. And the more I look around, the less evidence I see that people desire freedom. Um, they, they may desire not to be constrained by, you know, specific annoying people in their lives <laughs> or specific negative um, social patterns or, you know, government restrictions. But there is something that works at cross purposes with that in humans of desiring to be subjugated. And it's, it's very ugly and disturbing. And I think one of the things that's so problematic about digital tech is somehow it it plugs into that deep, ugly desire for subjugation and gives a direction and outlet for it while obscuring who who your new masters really are. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to ask you to unpack that a little further. My immediate reaction, of course, is to point out to our listeners that the question is Paul Pauline from Galatians 3. We've mentioned that, right? Uh, uh, why do you want to fall back into slavery to these elementary powers or principles uh, 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 
for freedom Christ has set you free. Don't don't submit again to a yoke of bondage. You know, so the the question why do we desire our own subjugation is profoundly Pauline. Then point number one. I think in European political philosophy, the one who answered that question in a very formative and influential way was Thomas Hobbes, because he said uh, uh, the state of nature is a war of all against all. It's a cutthroat world in which alpha males are fighting with each other for gain and glory, uh, and uh, uh, women and children are part of the booty. And this war of all against all uh, leads to bloodshed and stalemate and exhaustion until finally a social contract is uh, arranged in which uh, the lesser alpha males uh, bow down in obeisance to the better alpha male. And he says, uh, I will take the monopoly of power. Uh, and with it, I will protect you and give you a piece of the pie. In turn, you must uh, subjugate yourselves to me. And Hobbes argued that that is the basic uh, state of uh, political society, the, what theologically what we would call the city of man. And much later, uh, uh, a philosopher of Nazism uh, made a Hobbesian kind of argument in which he argued that all political societies exist in a constant state of exception, uh, exception to the very rules that they create for others, that the political sovereignty means I can enforce an order that brings a kind of truce, a civil truce about, so that people aren't killing each other's. But the only way that I can actually enforce that truce is to claim that the ongoing emergency of domestic and foreign threats puts me above the very law that I am, for the sake of domestic uh, truce, imposing upon uh, the subjugated. So this was a philosopher of fascism who was justifying the uh, extraordinary powers assumed by Adolf Hitler in that period. Uh, but I think deeper re philosophical reflection on this point wonders whether this is in fact the case, uh, as Thomas Hobbes argued, with all forms of political sovereignty, that we subjugate ourselves to some superior power because otherwise we are uh, exposed, vulnerable and exposed to the uh, arbitrary, capricious violence of others. I think politically that's right. I think there is also a, a deeper and for me more disturbing existential layer to that, maybe because freedom brings with it accountability for yourself. And that's that's terrifying. And I, I know I am very much not a utopian. So I don't think that this human yearning for subjugation is something that can be, you know, overcome or left behind in the dustbin of history. But I do think specifically for our time, which is where, you know, we're all at and we have to address, I think the reason freedom is so unappealing is because there's little in it beyond just lack of constraints. And freedom that's worth having 
you know, just to uh, maybe map out basically, it has to be a freedom in which you feel good living in your own body, first of all. And um, just to look at the state of health in our so-called highly developed North America is appalling. People do not feel good in their own bodies. They feel in a lot of pain. And um, partly it's because of the amount of time they spend not moving and craned over these, um, you know, static <laughs> things like smartphones and computers. And also, freedom is worthy if you have the freedom to engage in meaningful social relationships. But again, the tech is pulling us farther and farther away from meaningful social um, in, uh, relationships, even to the fact that especially for young people who, who use them, it really does alter their neurology and deprives them of all of the long and necessary process of learning how to relate to other people so that they really it is hard to relate to others because they have not learned how to do it. They've been deprived of that. So again, why would you want to be free to go into relationships which are just pain and awkwardness for you all along? And finally, freedom is good if you have a vocation you can work towards where you do actually valuable work in the world. And we haven't even begin, begun to touch the degree to which... Um, the advance of digital tech and metadata harvesting has robbed people of actual economic value, both by stealing their data without pay, but also by using it to automate processes that are killing off jobs. This isn't just, um, uh, you know, um, Luddite fear. There is substantial evidence of real job loss, vocational loss due to this advance of digital tech. So again, if you put all those three things together, if I feel horrible in my body. I have no meaningful relationships and there's no worthy work I can do. Honestly, why not just scroll on Instagram all the time? <laughs> you know, like what <laughs> what what freedom out there is better for you? So what what I, I find so disturbing, uh, dystopian about this tech is how rapidly self-reinforcing it is. It it continually accelerates the creation of the circumstances that use people that cause people to use it to get out of it. But the more they use it, the more they create the circumstances in the first place. And that's why uh, I really want to leave you with the idea, everybody, that this is not in the first place, a moral issue of people not being able to control their rage. This is a, a, a structural revolution in how human beings do their business on earth. And it requires those kind of decisions, not a resolution to be a better person or to avoid the bad people. Wow. Yeah. That makes me think of something that Hoshana Zuboff wrote about in her book on these issues a study of slot machines in the casinos in which uh, they realized that even playing for a big payoff wasn't what motivated people uh, to play the slot machines. Uh, people would get a payoff and then instead of pocketing the money and going home before they lost it and saying, wow, I beat the system today, they would take their winnings and just keep using them until they were exhausted. And it was because the very relationship to the slot machine was so, uh, uh, it was creating their behavior. It, like you said earlier, it was a form of addiction uh, and so forth. So why do people desire their own subjugation? They find in this impoverished, morally, spiritually, and physically impoverished world that we have created, 
they find greater pleasure in pulling the lever and pushing the button uh, than even uh, the Pyrrhic victory of uh, once in a while having a, a, a triumph over the system at the casino. All right. Well, on that bleak note, um, I would actually like to announce that my husband Andrew and I have started a podcast called The Disentanglement Podcast. It's very different from Queen of the Sciences. Each episode is 20 to 25 minutes. And we basically are talking through ways in which we are trying to disentangle ourselves from these systems. So it is um, more practical and orientation. And each episode tries to give you everybody some, you know, actionable thing to do to disentangle disentangle yourself from these systems. So just wherever you listen to Queen of the Sciences, you can find the Disentanglement podcast as well. And next time on the show, we will be discussing Reinhold Niebuhr's Nature and Destiny of Man, Volume 1. I'm looking forward to that. Destiny of Man is to pull a slot machine and scroll through Instagram. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.